It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Man must evolve for all human conflict, a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me, as always, is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So, Jonathan, what's our episode or our episode for today's topic? What's our topic for today's episode? (laughs) Well, Rick, our question is, can biblical strategies resolve serious conflicts? Part one. And our theme text is found in James 4, verse 1. What is the source of our quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Okay, so can biblical strategies resolve serious conflicts? And this is part one of a two-part series. So coming up in today... Oh, also, joining us today is Julie. Hi. Hey, I I didn't forget (laughs) you, really. I I thought you forgot about me. That would be a conflict. (laughs) That would be Um, a conflict. (laughs) So as uh, as Christians, we don't all see eye-to-eye doctrinally or even agree on what a Christ-like lifestyle looks like. And we can either grow or be disabled by conflict. So I'm looking forward to using the Bible as a touchstone for how we should be resolving conflicts. And coming up in today's podcast, good thing you're looking there because that's where we're going. Conflict is easy. Solving it is hard. In about 15 minutes, we're going to introduce how conflict works and how easily it can get worse before it gets better. Did you ever wonder how our world has become so conflict-ridden? As we examine how conflict degenerates, you'll be amazed at how dramatically our social and political issues fit into this downward spiral that's coming up in about 30 minutes. And finally, how bad can conflict get if it's not handled? It can get ugly. And we're going to tell you about that in about 45 minutes. But first, let's start at the beginning. Conflict is everywhere. Small children need to be guided through conflict when they learn about sharing. And we've all heard this. And they scream, but that's mine. Adolescents can use some serious education through conflict when they begin to believe their parents are ignorant and rebelliously demand their own way. Adults, especially spouses, need practical coaching when they clash with one another's viewpoints on issues of importance. And when it comes to social issues and politics, most of us, whether we know it or not, are desperate for direction in our deep conflicts, for without that direction, we will destroy one another. The point is obvious. Conflicts abound at every stage of life and in most every circumstance in life. So what can we do? How do we just not cope, but how can we overcome all of this conflict? Fortunately, the Bible is full of conflicts and therefore full of solutions. Some of the basis for today's discussion is taken from a conference called Reality Leadership, presented by Dr. John C. Maxwell, a well-known leadership author and teacher. And Jonathan, that seminar, that Reality Leadership seminar, I attended one of those. And this was about 20 years ago or so, and it made a really deep impact on me. And it was one of those things where I walked away saying, there are spiritual lessons here that are just profound. And so that's where we're drawing some of the basis for our our conversation. So to begin with, where does conflict come from? And Rick, our focus should be, these are things I do. Not looking at others, but look inwardly. So we're going to begin by examining conflict that is essentially my own fault, things that I do that can cause conflict. So Julie, there's lots of things. Get us started on this. Conflict may come when we don't get what we want. Okay, we don't get what we want. Satan's desires were bigger than his being. He's our first example of the creation of conflict. Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14 is about him. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit in the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. See, he had a lot of pride, and pride is often central 
in conflicts. His desires were bigger than his being. What's another way I can create conflict? Conflict can come when we put our impulses above our good sense. Okay, impulses above our good sense. Let's look at Eve as an example. She made an impulsive choice in the moment rather than relying on previously plainly stated truth of God's will. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Okay, so impulsive action is going to feed conflict. We act impulsively and look, we all do this. Julie, what else? Conflict may come from resentment. Cain is a good example here. Cain was given a solution to his unacceptable sacrifice, but he instead acted out of jealous resentment, and the result we all know was really pretty awful. Genesis chapter 4, verses 5, 8, and 9. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Cain told Abel his brother, And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So here we can see that resentment magnifies conflict. So so we're listing out several ways that I can contribute to conflict. I don't get what I want. Take my impulses over our good sense. Resentment. What else, Julie? Conflict may come when our choice of words is not clearly understood. Okay, this is, there's, there's a lot here, and we're just, we're just trying to touch on these things very lightly to, to lay some groundwork. Let me give you an example. So I, I'm, concerned about, I'm concerned about you, Jonathan, and so I say to you, Jonathan, what's wrong with you? Does that show concern? Well... A little. <laughs> yeah. Or, but, man, what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus, versus saying, so Jonathan, what's troubling you? See, it's, That sounds more genuine. And that's the point. We can, we have to be able to frame the meaning behind the words so we can get, get through. It's very easy to misunderstand what others say. Jesus was misunderstood in many things. We're going to give you one small example of Jesus being misunderstood by his followers. You know, he's usually misunderstood by the Pharisees, but this is an example where he's misunderstood by his followers. John 21, 21 to 23. So Peter, seeing John, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And uh, that's a very uh, unique um, set of scriptures. And we won't take that time to explain what it means, but in the CQ Rewind show notes, it'll be in the bonus material to really find out what was meant here. It's awesome. But he was misunderstood, but we do realize that there is a prophetic meaning to what Jesus said. So that's, that's good. And we all come from different perspectives, and many times we'll either say it wrong, and that wasn't our intention, or more often we hear it wrong, and we take offense pretty quickly. Okay, say it wrong, hear it wrong. Either way, we can be the cause of conflict by not phrasing it appropriately or not listening clearly enough. So applying another's words or having our words applied out of context gives conflict momentum. So up to this point, we've been talking about all of these kinds of things that I can do that will cause conflict. So let's change gears a little bit and let's look at a few examples of things that circumstantially can cause conflict. They don't necessarily come from me, but they come from others or the circumstances. There's several ways that conflict can arise uh, in, in other ways. So Julie, let's get started with that. Conflict may come when there are issues with more than one potential solution. Okay. Issues with more than one potential solution. Defining faithfulness and imperfect Christians can have a lot of variation. Again, we're not going to get into any of these things, but this is important. What's required of me may not be required of you. Think about that. Romans chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. 
The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Okay, for God has accepted him, okay? Oversimplifying someone else's experience can breed conflict. You know, I have an example. Um, uh, Basically, the thought is um, whether we meet at church on Sunday or Saturday, is it wrong for us to judge if someone is following their conscience and will only meet on Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath? Is that a a problem. Well, and that that's a conflict. But again, the the conflict, the the we have to understand that when somebody's following their conscience, that's a big deal and that needs to be able to be respected because that's the way they're understanding things at this point in their Christian life. Another example is if you're living with someone but plan to eventually get married. Does that matter? What happens if you go on into living arrangement assuming you'll be married and something happens and you decide not to get married? Uh, any longer. Either way, it's still not scriptural. Um, it's sin with, because of fornication. This is a moral issue. So what about moral issues with conflict? See, th- that's the thing. There are, there are some things, and, and we're going to get into this, that are, are principally driven, driven by principle, and need to be adhered to very, very strictly. Morality is one of those things. So when we say, well, you know, what's required of me may not be required of you, that has nothing to do with morality. Morality is equally required of every single Christian, period. Let's make sure we understand that very clearly. Okay, next piece of conflict that can have circumstantial fault. Conflict may come from change. Simple. Change. Everybody loves change. Most people don't, actually. (laughs) Jewish Christians had serious and honest challenges with their newfound freedom in Christ. It was this newfound freedom but it created challenge for them to be able to deal with it. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to to 2, lays out a very clear um, challenge in terms of understanding what life was supposed to look like now as a Christian. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So this issue was a big deal in the early church. We are, again, not going to get into the details, and it was a great conflict that caused many of the most responsible Christian minds to get together and work it out. Conflict is natural when something stable and good is suddenly undone. You know, in that, at that point, the law was stable and good, but it needed to be undone. That created conflict and needed proper principles to be able to be solved. Julie, we're, we're talking about conflict that has circumstantial fault. We talked about when there's issues with more than one potential solution, change. What's next? Conflict may come when we have legitimately different perspectives. Okay. Paul and Barnabas parted ways over a conflict. I just wanted to give a little background on that. So when Paul and Barnabas left Antioch, they took John Mark as a helper. John Mark is a relative of Barnabas. But halfway through the journey, John Mark left. This is in Acts 13, 13. The Bible doesn't tell us why he left, and there's a lot of theories, but it obviously took Paul by surprise. And here in this next uh, chapter that we're going to read, he did not want to give John Mark another chance. And that's in Acts 15, 36 to 40. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. You know, you can look at this in a lot of different ways, and, you know, there there are those who say, well, Paul was just cold in all of this. You know, he just, he abruptly left. It didn't give the guy a chance. What's wrong with him? Well, I don't think Paul was wrong. I think that Paul looked at the circumstance, and he said, this is too difficult. He didn't, he, he didn't cut it before he's not ready. Barnabas, on the other hand, said, oh, look, I know him. I know him. He can do it. 
I'm not saying either one of them was wrong. I think they, they both were right from their own perspective. So Paul's right. Barnabas is right. Here's what happened. They split, and you say, oh, that's terrible. Well, think about it. The gospel went twice as far now because you had these two tremendous shakers and movers of the gospel now working separately. And, you know, there, there's actually kind of a good ending to the story, right, Julie? That's great. Yeah. And it's worth noting that, so in the end, years later, when Paul's in prison, he describes John Mark in Colossians 4, 10, and 11 as a comfort to Paul. And he calls him a fellow worker unto the kingdom of God. So whatever differences they had were resolved. And, and Paul in another place said, you know, I want John Mark to come because he is helpful to me. So you see that this was a difficulty that did get a resolution because everybody had the right ends in mind in this. And we're going to get into that in a, in a moment. So we're, we're, we're wrapping up now the conflicts that have, have circumstantial faults. Julie, there's one more we want to touch on. Conflict often thrives on what we say, which reflects how we feel. What we say reflects how we feel. Got to be really careful with this. James chapter 3, uh, verses 2 and then 10 through 12. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? Conflict often thrives on what we say because it reflects how we feel and we're off-center. We have to be realized that that can happen to you and create a conflict right in front of you. So there's lots of ways that conflict can come to us from ourselves and from external circumstances. So as, as we wrap this up, Jonathan, these are quick examples of how conflict can come into our lives. What's our conflict, conflict clarity for this segment? Conflict thrives because we are conflicted beings. <laughs> Whether we cause it, contribute to it, or have it has come to us, we must learn to manage it in a God-glorifying way. Conflict is going to happen because we're sinful, we're conflicted, and we need to understand this is how it all works. Again, so conflict happens. It doesn't matter if we're outspoken or spend time hiding. Conflict will always find us. Conflict is here to stay in this life. So how do we keep it from overwhelming us when we face it? Our CQ crew is always giving you podcast extras, like our exclusive weekly newsletter that highlights featured episodes you may not have discovered yet, video content you may not have seen yet, CQ Rewind show notes, extra Bible study questions, and social media highlights, all packed into an easy-to-follow email inbox delivery. Sign up now by texting CQ Rewind to the number 22828. That's CQ Rewind with no spaces. Text to the number 22828. We Never sell or give away your information, and you can unsubscribe at any time. It's easy. So just send us a text and you'll be subscribed. The big thing about managing conflict is facing it. Sometimes we wish it would just go away. Other times we think, well, if we ignore it, we won't have to deal with it. Now, look, we all know these approaches won't work. So let's focus ourselves on recognizing the degrading stages of conflict. And that's really what we're going to focus in on here, the degrading stages of conflict. To do that, we need to look at the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees and how it degenerated as time went on. Didn't degenerate because of what Jesus did or taught, but because of what the Pharisees did as they continued to close their hearts and their eyes to the truth that was so obviously before them. So if you really want to manage serious conflicts, you absolutely need the following understanding that we're going to begin to lay out here. And we wanted to read part of a message from Tony H. from Wisconsin. He emailed us at inspiration at christianquestions.com. And he said, I just wanted to comment based on the title of tonight's episode that conflicts can be resolved via having a Christ-like attitude in mind. My thinking and temperament has been transformed by applying the Beatitudes in my life. I've learned to quickly apply a percentage value to how much any given thing matters. And if it doesn't matter, I can let it go. 
I thought that was really a great comment. You apply a percentage value, and if it's not high enough, not worth it. Thanks, Tony. And there's lots of ways to contact us. You can email us again at inspiration at christianquestions.com or contact us at our website or message us through the CQ app, or we even have live chat with other listeners throughout the podcast on both our website and our app. Okay, lots of ways to contact. And you're right, very, very well stated you know, putting things in perspective, attaching a, a, a value. Is it worth it? And we're really going to get into that in a lot of details as we go through this, this exercise and understanding the five degenerating stages of conflict. We're going to start with a soundbite from The Dangers of Tribalism by Kevin De La Plante. He was a college professor, and he uses his college professor approach to taking things apart. You can really hear this. We're going to be going back to him throughout the podcast. And he's going to be talking about polarization. And in this particular uh, soundbite, polarization's dark side. Now, there's an obvious dark side to polarization. It's not hard to see how increasing polarization in our tribal psychology can lead to serious social and political problems and a distorted perception of the world. Here are two groups that are intermixed. They live and work together. I've drawn one as lighter green and the other as darker green. Let's assume that they disagree on some fundamental principles. They could be liberals and conservatives, Protestants and Catholics, vegetarians and non-vegetarians. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the character of the disagreement, how disagreement is interpreted and managed. How it's interpreted and managed. So this is going to get us into these degenerating stages of conflict. Now, as we present each stage, there are five. The first one is the best kind. The last one is the worst kind. We're going to present to you what we call a conflict management reality statement. And this statement is, a, is cold, hard truth that if you're going to deal with conflict, honestly and truly, we each need to be able to accept this into our own hearts. We're going to end each of these stages of, of degenerating conflict with a conflict clarity question to give us a sense of where am I? So before we get to this first stage, which is the best stage of conflict, here's our conflict management reality statement. Every personal opinion, preference, passion, or principle that I hold can become the center of conflicts in my life. I must always remember that is, I have these opinions and preferences and passions and principles, so I must recognize that others will have them as well. If I don't give you the same latitude to have opinions and preferences and passions as well as principles that you abide by, I am not being fair and I will never be able to resolve conflicts with others. This is important to understand. So, Julie, what's the first stage of conflict. This is the the best kind of conflict we can have. Well, the first stage is the remedy stage, and this is the desire we have it to fix the problem, and we have a commitment to fix that problem, and we believe it can be solved, and we have honest communication still at this stage. You know, a lot of people are so uncomfortable with any kind of conflict that they avoid it at all costs, but that's when things fester and we can become irritated or passive aggressive or resentful when it could have been remedied. So we aren't saying avoid all conflict. Conflict can be good because we can learn and grow. As a matter of fact, conflict is necessary to learn and grow. Let's not, let's not forget that. Now look, at this remedy stage, 80 to 85% of conflicts can be solved at this level. So you want to focus in on, hey, what goes on here? And Julie, you already mentioned commitment to fix the problem, belief it can be solved, honest communication. Well, let's take a look at a scriptural example. The Pharisees in Mark 2, 15 to 17, they ask a simple and what potentially could be a very honest question. Now, I want to preface this by saying it wasn't an honest question. But for the sake of understanding the stages of conflict, let's pretend that they were sincere in this question, and we'll see, you can see what, what it could, could have done for them. So Jonathan, Mark 2, 15 to 17. And it happened when he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of, and the, of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, 
It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, I I had not noticed this before, but did you see what just happened here? Jesus is within earshot because he hears them. But instead of asking Jesus the question, you know, hey, why are you eating with sinners? They buzz, buzz, buzz to the disciples (laughs) instead of going to the source. They didn't want the answer. They just wanted to judge. And if this were an honest question, it could have stimulated thought and discussion. But but no, that wasn't their intent. Right. And, And see, that's why we use it as a great example, because it's a good question. Why is Jesus eating with the and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And if they would have asked Jesus, hey, you know, why are you doing that? We're confused. That's an open invitation for dialogue. But no, no, no. Like you said, I don't know how you said it. It was kind of good. Buzz, 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 whatever it was. Buzz, buzz, buzz. Okay. It, it, they just buzz, went, buzz, buzz, buzz. They, they went the wrong direction. And that would have been a way to stimulate communication. That's how you remedy conflict. You stimulate honest response by asking honest questions. So, Jonathan, conflict clarity question for us as we look at this remedy stage. When I see something that conflicts with my personal opinions preferences, passions, or principles, what questions do I ask and how do I ask them? Okay. It's not about just what I ask. It's also about how do I ask it? What is in my mind and my heart when I'm asking that question, when I see something that conflicts with all of these parts of me? So the remedy stage is the best stage. You want to live there when you have conflict. Unfortunately, most of us go whizzing by this in a really fast car, and we end up in different places. So before we get to the second stage of degenerating conflict, let's go back to the dangers of tribalism, Kevin De La Plante, and he had talked in the first stage uh, about polarization. Now he's going to talk about uh, some, some of the lower levels of polarization. With lower levels of polarization, all other things being equal, there's more tolerance for disagreement. We recognize that in spite of our differences, there's still a great deal of common ground between us. And we can use that common ground as a basis for constructing a social space where we can live and work together peacefully. Our differences don't prevent us from being respectful and even friendly to one another. I see you as holding different views from me on some issues, and I may disagree with your reasons, but I never question your capacity to reason or your entitlement to be treated like a human being worthy of respect and dignity. Now, isn't that nice to have that, there's, a, there's trouble, there's conflict, but I see you having the capacity to reason. Well, now we're going to kind of start to leave that behind, unfortunately. And folks, honestly, this is the direction that most of our conflicts go. So Julie, what, well, first of all, before we ask you, oh wait, you had a, you, 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 had something else. Well, I, yes. I, I just thought, wow, does that sound like American politics right now, <laughs> where we, we, we question your capacity to reason and your entitlement to be treated like a human being? It's, it's, it's a nightmare out there. Yeah. And you know what? It's a nightmare that's getting darker and scarier by the day. And we, as Christians, had better not let ourselves get involved in such things. We need to stand above this with the principles of righteousness in dealing with conflicts. So our conflict management reality statement before we get to the second stage of degenerating conflicts is this. Because my personal opinions, preferences, and passions are so ingrained in me, I am liable to easily elevate any of them to the status of a principle. Now understand something. I have opinions and preferences and passions. Principles are immovable. Opinions, changeable. Preferences, movable. Passions, negotiable. Principles, no. But it is easy to elevate those three things to the standard of principle, so I stand hard on that. It's a big mistake. Julie, what's the second stage? It's the repositioning stage. So here we're looking for who caused the problem. And in this stage, people are nervous. They're getting defensive and they're protective and a lower trust level reigns and their communication starts becoming more cautious. And I was thinking the more time we spend with someone, the more likely conflicts are going to arise. And so the ability to resolve these conflicts is very important. I think we need to watch out in this blame game stage with family members and spouses because it's a slippery slope to get to those next stages. 
Okay, so you're walking around with that pointed finger is who's making this trouble. Who's making, you're, you're, looking, right. you're looking to identify. Now look, about 50% of conflicts can be resolved here. Now think, the first stage, 80 to 85% could be resolved. Now you're down to 50%. That's a pretty big drop off. If you're in school, it's going from getting a B to failure. So think about that in terms of the drama there. We have a choice here. We can invite dialogue with our questions or condemn with our questions. Yeah, you know, and you can ask the same question and your tone can tell whether you're inviting dialogue or you're condemning. And it's such a big thing. We need to be careful. We're Christians. You know what the right answer is. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to know and stand up for that which is right. So now let's go back to the example of the Pharisees. We looked at Mark 2. We're going to stay with that same context for the first three levels of, of um, the degrading uh, conflicts here. The Pharisees now, right after that first question they ask, now point a finger of accusation after the disciples are seen plucking grains from the field on the Sabbath. And Jesus comes into the temple area with his disciples, and we're now still in Mark chapter 2. We're jumping down to verses 24 to 26, and they just confront Jesus. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he is, his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abagair, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Okay, so Jesus um, responds to this. Why are they doing what is not lawful on Sabbath? Asking a question based on a predetermined answer, and that's exactly what they did, displays defensiveness and a lack of trust. There was no wiggle room for goodness in the answer. Why are they doing what's illegal? You know, no wiggle room whatsoever. And, you know, their tone is conclusive. It's judgment. They're looking for Jesus to be an illegitimate leader by asking that question. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and this is where you're looking to, to find somebody to blame. Who's causing the problem? I know. Look at what his followers doing. You know, you're looking for trouble. And you know what? That's what you're going to get, is trouble. Let's look at James chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. We are Christians. We should not be doing this repositioning nonsense. Hear what James has to say about our words. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. These things ought not to be this way. You know what that's saying? Let's be blunt. When we get involved in conflicts and we we mess up the the, the principle and passion and, and, and preference thing, we should apply the scripture ourselves. These things ought not to be this way. We know better. We should act better because we know. Jonathan, let's wrap up with that personal conflict clarity question. When I'm faced with something that conflicts with my perceived principles, do I begin to draw conclusions before I seek more information? And Rick and Julie, this is not about winning and losing. We're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to understand the other person's perspective. This can be hard for competitive people. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that is something I need to work on. Okay, you know, it's not about winning and losing. And that's the thing we need to understand. It's about understanding and it's about communicating and it's about growth. That's what this is about. And just realize my methods of conclusions uh, can sow, my methods of conclusion can sow seeds of clarity, and that's good, or seeds of chaos. You choose by how you show your conclusions. This is important. Only two stages and already there's a massive difference in the ability to solve conflict. This is scary. It sounds like a slippery slope is ahead. What does it look like and how can we stay off of it? Are you just getting started in your Bible studying? Or are you a weekly listener looking for more after the podcast? Go to ChristianQuestions.com Then click on the Bible study tab to see our concise companion Bible study questions.
You know, these are not called the five degenerating stages of conflict for nothing. Not only do these stages descend into chaos, they unfortunately look all too familiar. Julie, like you said before, politics, social issues, moral dilemmas all seem to live in the last three stages. We haven't even touched those yet. This shows us how desperate we are as a society for godliness. We are so far off. We completely, completely, and if I didn't make my point, completely miss godliness and our communication when we have conflict in our society. This is desperately wrong. We need to be better than this. Let's go back to the dangers of tribalism with Kevin De La Plant. Uh, and interestingly, his next point is talking about increasing polarization. Now, as we ratchet up the polarization, it becomes increasingly difficult to manage these disagreements. With increasing polarization, we end up disagreeing on more things and we disagree more strongly. We care more about the issues on which we disagree. And it becomes harder to accept disagreement as something we should just expect among reasonable people. It becomes harder for me to accept that your disagreement isn't a sign of a deeper flaw in your moral character or a deeper flaw in your capacity to see reality for what it is. As polarization increases, common ground decreases. And that's a sign of disrespect. We disrespect those on the other side when we go down this road. So before we get to the third stage of the third degenerating stage of conflict, our conflict management reality statement, again, cold hard truth to understand. Once I've elevated my personal opinion or preference or passion to the status of principle, remember we talked about that before, I will begin to address conflict through judgment. Now, the only validation I seek is to verify what I have judged to be true. So essentially, the story's over because mm -hmm. I've decided on the conclusion, and you can't be more wrong than that. You can't be more wrong. So Julie, what's this third stage, this third degenerating stage of conflict? Well, this is the rights stage, which means I'm right <laughs> and you're wrong. And in this stage, people take sides and they are labeled. So in a Christian environment, the other side might be labeled as too worldly or deceived. And in this stage, you're in the mode to win. And Jonathan just warned us about that winning and losing situation. But you're, you're out for blood here. And obviously, then, communication gets distorted and frequently overstated. Okay, so this is not a good stage to be at. You know, I'm right, you're wrong. Now think about it. This is only the third. There's two more, okay? And we're already, I'm right, you're wrong. You know what the percentage of success is here? Remember last stage was bad. It was 50%. Well, here you're at 15 to 20% of conflicts can be resolved here. Just 15 or 20%. Well, sarcasm is a big part of this stage. An example is how our media today reports things in the news. It creates a hateful atmosphere. And you're right. Sarcasm is one of the greatest tools of destruction amongst us. And unfortunately, we've taken sarcasm to be part of our norm, part of how we communicate with one another. And when we are in a conflict area and we start to use sarcasm, all we're doing is stabbing. We're, just, we're, 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 we're stabbing somebody else in the heart is what we're doing. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to stab us. And you know what you end up with? A lot of blood and two dead people. That's what you end up with. And it's never going to bring you anywhere good. Go ahead. And more than two people can be affected by yeah. unresolved differences. The collateral damage is worse when others get caught up in our bitterness. So families and brethren in the same congregation can be affected and driven away from each other. We need to consider how do our differences affect the others in our lives? Are we making them uncomfortable or even worse? Are we leading them to gossip or other forms of sinning? See, so, okay, so more than just two dead people, you're going to end up with a whole room full. The whole clan. It, because it's I'm right, you're wrong. And again, this is only a third. Now, look, we're not spending a lot of time on solutions here, okay? And this is by design. Part two, we're going to spend a lot of time on the solutions. We're going to go back through these, all right? But you need to understand the depth and the seriousness of what happens with our conflicts. And hopefully, as we look at these things, we're saying, 
do I do this? Do I do this? When do I do this? So let's look at the Pharisees again. We're going to go to Mark chapter 3, same context as before, and the Pharisees have no more need for questions of Jesus anymore. Now they simply look for reasons to accuse him. Mark 3, verses 1, 2, and 6. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. Okay, so Jesus, now he knows their heart, he challenges their thinking, and then he heals the man. So he knows what's going on, and he goes right to them, and he explains things, and then he heals the man with the withered hand. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So the motive of the Pharisees was to try to prove their point that Jesus was not from God because in their sight, he was breaking the law. Jesus was an enemy. Right. They made him an enemy and he's a representative and he's showing them the goodness of what he does. He healed this man in front of those who were his greatest skeptics. And he did it with lawful reasoning. And all they wanted to do was destroy him. When we're so stuck in our position of being right, we become blind to the potential evidence that can lead us to truth. That's what happened to the Pharisees. Jesus was Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He was the truth that was standing before them. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it. And so they walked away from him, and they looked to try to destroy him. You know, I'm right, you're wrong, get out of my way. Like you said, Jonathan, uh, you're acting illegally. Well, Let's go to James chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, and see how James responds to this kind of thinking and action. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. You know, it talks about don't be arrogant, and I love this statement, and, and by being arrogant, lie against the truth. We have a great responsibility to stand up for truth and support truth, even if it doesn't serve our preferences or opinions or passions. We need to still stand up for truth. And when we get into conflicts, we tend to take our feelings and put them front and center. I'm right, you're wrong, not a good situation. Jonathan, what's our conflict clarity question for this right stage of I'm right and you're wrong? Once I have, unfortunately, decided to address conflict through my predetermined perspective, do I now look to entrap those whom I have judged in their actions to prove my point? Boy, that's harsh. That's an important question. And we need to be brave enough every one of us, to ask that question of ourselves. When I have done that predetermining of how things should work out, do I set it up so I can entrap them in their words? And if that's your motivation, shame on you. If you're a Christian and we are standing in that place, that's shameful. This is not glory to God. This is not glory to God. So let's go to, before we get to our next conflict stage, The Dangers of Tribalism with Kevin De La Plante. And, you know, he talked about that the, the growing, increasing polarization, and now he talks about what naturally comes next. I'm right, you're wrong, and it's going to move on to the next stage. And this is a feeling, a need to separate. And then we hit a point where we feel an urge to separate. Peaceful coexistence between us seems impossible, and our instinct is to adapt by segregating carving out social and political spaces where we don't have to interact with the other group, where we can enjoy the comforts of social interaction with our own kind, and the very real psychological benefits of unity and solidarity and the feeling of being a part of a collective identity. When this happens, polarization within each group drops back down to lower levels. Now, this may not sound so bad, but unfortunately, what often happens is that these very real psychological benefits are bought at a cost to our relationships with other groups. In-group solidarity tends to go up when the out-group, the group outside of us, is perceived in a negative light, as a dangerous other, as a threat to the unity and stability of our group. 
that's powerful, powerful thinking that we need to understand. This is the dynamics of what happens. Look, unity is good. I'm not, we're not saying, no, don't, don't go there. What we're saying is, what, at what cost are you achieving that unity? And is it a Christ-like way of achieving such unity? Or are we stepping outside of those boundaries? So we're going to set up for now the fourth stage, the fourth degenerating stage of conflict. And to set that up, here's our conflict management reality. Having prejudged without scriptural process and mercy, all that's left is to remove those with whom we have conflict. One who acts based upon the application of godly principles could not be here at this point without thorough, open-minded, merciful, and prayerful dialogue which seeks to give the benefit of the doubt. There's appropriateness sometimes in removal, but you have to get there the right way. So Julie, what's the fourth stage and a little bit of background on it? All right, this is the removal stage. Get rid of those people. Your goal in this stage is divorce or argumentative disunity or resentful disassociation. And there's no solution that we've come up with, so we've got to get rid of them. And of course, there's no communication in this stage because there's no trust to base it on. So this stage used the phrases divorce and argumentative disunity and resentful disassociation. We know what divorce means, but what about the other two? Okay, argumentative disunity. That's infighting within the group. There's this infighting that really is trying to put down the other and, and just, you know, you have this, this polarization within. The resentful disassociation is, forget it, I can't deal with you anymore, and you actually leave. So there's the leaving before you physically leave, and then there's the physical leaving neither one of which is Christ-like. What we need to do is be able to manage those things. But isn't removal appropriate in some cases? Remember the Apostle Paul in Romans 16 uh, tells people, <clears throat> excuse me, tells us to avoid divisive people. And here's something that was really blunt, Titus 3.10. It says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. So isn't this removal stage a good thing. It can be, and it can be very, very appropriate, but it's very difficult to do it in an appropriate fashion. Why? Because I'm full of preferences, I'm full of opinions, and I'm full of my own passions, which many times are not the principles. And the Apostle Paul is talking about making decision based on principle period. And if we have that clearly before us, yes, removal can be an important thing to do, but it's not a common thing because we too often get too sidetracked. And in our removal, we end up being part of the problem and not the solution. So yes, it is appropriate, but it's hard to get to. No question about that. So Here's a, I, I just have a quick story yeah, um, that always stuck with me. So we all had a mutual Christian friend and role model named Carl, who's now deceased, and his life was wholly devoted to God. And with doctrinal conflict, one piece of advice he had was to admit the validity of the other's arguments. Our goal, he said, should be to search for truth, not defend our position. And he and his brother-in-law, Jim, also a completely devoted Christian, they were taking a trip from Chicago to California. That's a long trip. And they, what? That's a long trip. Yeah. And they both held a diametrically opposed scriptural interpretation. And they spent the car ride so thoroughly listening and reviewing each other's position that by the time they reached California, they flipped 180 degrees, and now each held the other person's original understanding. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> that is crazy. And it was an enjoyable and profitable trip because they had such great respect for each other and for the words of the Lord. And they never did see eye to eye on the issue, but they still had unity and peace, and they thoroughly understood the arguments on both sides. That's very valuable to me. And that's why removal is important at times, but it can be avoided. That's exactly how. I'm not saying you flip your point of view necessarily. That's really <laughs> unusual. But to have that mutual respect, that's how you work through difficulties. So, you know, now, now look, here, 
the removal stage, get rid of those people. You know what the percentage is of, of being able to solve, re- resolve conflicts? 1%. Ooh. You got down to that final 1%. That means it's almost impossible. Ugh. Let's take a look at, going back to the Pharisees, we're moving on to a different account now. This is Mark 12, 12 to 14. The Pharisees now seek Jesus' removal because he's just too much trouble, and they've had enough, and he's in their way, so here's what happens. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Okay, now now look, now stop. You know, th- there's such deep hypocrisy in the question. They're posing a question to sound so sincere and so gener- gen- uh, genuine. Well, Jesus knows this. He calls out their hypocrisy, and he gives a powerful and unexpected answer. Acting in this manner that the Pharisees acted in, revealed the enormous flaw of being driven by emotion and pride while ignoring any clarity of truth. The question is, do I do this? Do we do this when we are looking to get rid of those others? Let me pretend to be interested so I can nail them and get rid of them finally. I mean, think about that. In the removal stage where we said there's no solution, get rid of them, I I was thinking of a personal experience with a family member. In my case, we cannot associate with them due to their mental illness and verbal and physical violent tendencies. In some cases, it is appropriate to not have someone to be part of your life, though it's heartbreaking. If proper steps were taken by them, we would be willing to dialogue again. Uh, First, professional psychiatric therapy, prescribed medication, and asking forgiveness for harm caused to family members. But, you know, that's a, that's a tall order. We may have to wait for Christ's kingdom. Uh, it's here when we want to pray for strength to endure what we cannot cure. You know, some conflicts just can't be resolved at this time. And, and so what you do is you graciously accept that with grace. That's the thing that gets missed all the time in our conflicts. Uh, James chapter 4 one to three gets right back to what's going on, what's going wrong. Well, James really kind of gives us an earful right here. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James is talking to fellow Christians. If they, at that point, could have been that far off, folks, imagine how far off we can be now. We need to look this right in the eye and decide, am I going to be a Christian standing for righteous principles or my own passions and principles and, 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 and pre- passions, preferences, and opinions? Decide what is most important? What's our conflict clarity question that we have to ask ourselves here, Jonathan? Do I even recognize it when I'm here in this miserable and dark state of satanic thinking and behavior? When I am in this condition and I look for Christ in me, what will I find? That's a powerful question. If I'm in this place, in this position, and this is my thinking, if I look for Christ in me, what is really there? Folks, we have to take this seriously. And again, we're not spending a lot of time on solutions here. You say, well, how come? Because you need to understand the depth of the problem. It's huge, and it gets worse. We're only at four. There's another stage coming. We need to be clear that I'm not going down this road. I'm just not going down this road. That's why part one is is going the way it's going. If we're not disturbed to our very core by all of this, then it's obvious our spiritual conscience is severely damaged. How can I, how can it get any worse than this? 
What else can be possibly added to conflict's tragic results? We're rolling out new series content this year. Multiple episodes on one topic over consecutive weeks, such as what do we do when the Bible seems to contradict itself? Go to ChristianQuestions.com and search for Bible Contradictions to see the full series of episodes and stay tuned for more new episodes and more new series releases at ChristianQuestions.com. The only thing left for this fifth degenerating stage of conflict is to throw away any last shred of reason and become vengeful. As harsh and as over-the-top as this might sound, we'd ask you to look around at the world right here in our present day. Are we not becoming angry, vile, and vengeful? I mean, seriously, are we not going down that road and somehow or other it has become commonplace and somehow or other... It's even become acceptable. Folks, as Christians, this is not acceptable. It just isn't. We need to stand on higher ground. One last time to the dangers of tribalism from Kevin De La Plante. And uh, this, this part is about uh, our, our losing reality, which is very appropriate for this fifth stage. And another casualty of extreme polarization is epistemic. When we cut ourselves off from other points of view, and only look to our tribe for guidance on what to believe and who to trust, we run the risk of erecting a system of beliefs that is increasingly unmoored from reality. The moral and political bubble that we've built for ourselves is also an epistemic bubble. Everyone outside the bubble is biased or lying or irrational or otherwise untrustworthy. And this is obviously a disaster for critical thinking. I think it's also obvious that our public culture is drifting in this direction. And in some areas, like our public political discourse, it has become toxic. But Rick, Ephesians 4.14 warns us against being carried about with every wind of doctrine. So don't we in some ways want to cut ourselves off from other points of view? Like, I don't need to spend a year studying Greek mythology to know that it isn't scriptural. But how do we protect truth? If we keep letting in everything else, how can I be a critical thinker but not get swayed by every new theory or biblical interpretation I find on the internet? Okay, see, and that that's a very legitimate question and concern. And we're not suggesting that we put ourselves in a bubble and ignore everything because they're all liars and cheaters. You know what? There's a lot of different perspectives in the world, and we need to be able to understand and respect them as such. However... Like you said, as Christians, we need to choose the things that we're going to spend our time on. What is the source that we want to look to primarily to find the things we're going to spend our time on? It's God's the, Word. That's it, right. Okay? And especially if you're a young Christian and there's lots of other things around, you want to. You want to latch on to someone who's got spiritual maturity to help you navigate through those things. And when those things come up, it's important to ask the questions. But ask them of somebody who's been around a little bit, who's got spiritual wisdom and experience to help you navigate. You know, so we're, we're not saying ignore everything. What we're saying is choose carefully. Make sure that your mind and your heart and your conscience is being fed by those things that will uplift you toward God and not toward fleshly thinking and desires. So no, Julie, we don't say cut everybody and everything off and make them all liars. What we do say is choose carefully what we spend our time and effort and emotion on. And do that, especially if you're young, with someone who you can truly respect, um, who has spiritual guidance and wisdom. And prove all things. Prove all things. And hold fast to that which is good? Is that what the Scripture says? That's what it says, and that's the answer right there. Okay, our final conflict management reality for our final stage here. Once I have abandoned righteous and biblical principles, because that's what's been happening in this whole process, in exchange for the evil of, now there's going to be three things, the evil of, first, accusation without listening, second, judgment without justice, and third, condemnation without mercy, and that's what's been happening, I must realize that it is I who goes before the judgment seat of God through Christ. I have written my own ticket to be judged. By doing this. Folks, don't underestimate the power of all of this. What's this last stage, Julie? This is sad. 
This is the revenge stage where we are going to make someone pay. And this is really the sorry end result of godless thinking. Because in this stage, people turn into fanatics. They're really fighting a religious war. And it now becomes almost immoral to stop the fighting. So now we're sinning in all kinds of ways. Not good. For more on the topic of how to manage revenge, see episode 971, How Sweet Is Revenge? Yeah, and the answer is not very, <laughs> you know, just giving you a heads up, you know. What we want to do is understand that when we're, when we're out to make someone pay, we really have taken God's judgment into our hands. And here's a hint. God's judgment belongs in his hands ever and always, never in ours example of the Pharisees. They became a runaway train now as they sought Jesus' life with full force. We're going to go to John 11, verses 47 to 50 and verse 53. This is after the raising of Lazarus. This was a dramatic statement of the power that God gave Jesus, and the Pharisees had had enough. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're saying he is causing so much trouble that we need to stop this. And the interesting thing is it was all about us, our place, our nation. He's going to take all of these things from us. Wait, isn't he God's representative? Didn't they kind of forget that minor detail? The Son of God himself is right there. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor did you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish? So Caiaphas is basically saying we need to be rid of him to save the people. This is our, this is our magnanimous effort to save the people. And it's interesting that Jesus did die for the people, but for a much bigger, better, more powerful, godly reason than they could ever imagine. And what's their conclusion here? So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So it became a plan. It wasn't a discussion. It wasn't a thought. This was now a plan. This is that revenge stage, make someone pay. Now, a pattern of mishandling conflict can shockingly and easily bring us to personally becoming a human weapon of mass destruction. That's what the Pharisees became, and we submit to you that when we mishandle conflict, that is what we can also become, human weapons of mass destruction, by trying to beat it down on others, and make them pay, we are not doing anything that even remotely resembles Christ-likeness. James 4, verse 4, really kind of lays it out very strongly for us. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And this makes me think of the evil in our history that created scapegoats, blaming others for the wrongdoings, mistakes, and faults of others. In the Dark Ages, Catholicism would harm anyone that didn't believe as they did. During the Holocaust, the Germans blamed everything on the Jews and did the worst atrocities to fellow human beings in our history. And in our day, politics is doing the same thing. They accuse the other party that it is their fault for the condition of the world. We should never forget that Jesus died for everyone, even those others that think differently than us. Even the ones that think differently than us. You know what? He died for them too. And for us to take the attitude of make them pay— got to realize that Jesus already paid for them. And what we're trying to do is undo the beauty of the gift of life that Jesus presented in the ransom. So, folks, these are those five degenerating stages. One last conflict clarity question we have to ask ourselves. Have I ever traveled down this slippery slope of darkness and ego, even in the small conflicts in my life? Let's be honest. Have I ever gone down to this point where I just want to get rid of them because my hatred 
for them or what they stand for is overwhelming me. Is that really Christ-likeness? Come on. We need to be so much better than this. So look, when it comes, when, when conflict is allowed to degenerate, the results, obviously, according to what we've just said throughout this podcast, the results are tragic. If we find that we've allowed this process to progress, let's follow what James tells us to do. Now, all along, James has been laying out the, the degenerating stages for us. James chapter 4, folks, write this down, okay? James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. These verses are actually going to be the basis for part two of this conversation, because in these verses, they lay out the remedies for each of the stages, the ways to work through things. So if you want to get a sense of what we're going to talk about, here's where we're going to start uh, with part two. Jonathan James 4, 7 through 10. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. A lot there, a lot of basic principles that are very, very solution-oriented for all of these stages of conflict. You know, we've got to always remember who we are, what our privilege is, and especially what's expected of us when we're faced with conflicts in our lives. One last scripture before we close, Jonathan, uh, Colossians 3, 12 to 14. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So as we begin to wrap this up, folks, the idea is, am I different than those around me? Do I stand for something that's higher, more wholesome, more valuable, more spiritual, and more mature than the average person when it comes to the conflicts of life, because there's lots of them. Social media is rife with conflict. Why? Because it's all emotional. And when we take our emotions, they become our principles, and we go down this whole road. Here's the problem. Because conflict is primarily founded on our words, and social media is full of words, uh, our words lead to action. Its resolution is also primarily founded on our words. Conflict can only be resolved with genuine and serious communication. And part two is going to be focused on understanding how to be actual peacemakers and not just peacekeepers. You know, we do this whole thing about keeping the peace because we gravitate toward those in our own tribe and we look down upon those on the outside because it makes us feel good on the inside. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Jesus never did that. And he would never teach us to do that. And when we walk down that road, we are walking away from our Lord. If you're a Christian, do you want to walk toward Jesus or away from him? Choose you this day whom you will serve, your own emotions or Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when you deal with conflict. Think about it. Folks, listen. We really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please, rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, coming up next week, not going to be part two, but we're actually going to add to the fire so part two is even more impactful. Next week... Is your COVID-19 Christianity still being tested? A lot to talk about there. We'll talk to you next week.